Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's program, Bart and Jenna play Kiss, Marry, Kill with the movies of 1961. Bud? At my feet, slave. Bud, don't. Tell me you love me. Bud, you're hurting me. Tell me you can't live without me. Say it. I do. You do what? I do love you. You can't live without me. Hi, Jenna. Hi. I guess it's time for another Kiss, Mary Kill episode. Yes, it is. Every five episodes, we are now going to start doing this Kiss, Mary Kill, where we pick a year uh, through the decade in order and choose a movie that we want to try, one that we love, and then one that we just can't stand. And this episode is 1961, because we did 1960 last time. So 1961 was a pretty good year for film. As I did last time for 1960, I went through the uh, the U.S. top 10, the top grossing films of the year. So let me do that uh, for 1961. And the number one box office hit of 1961 was West Side Story which you said you've never seen as a, as a fan of musicals. I, I find that hard to believe. I know, it's terrible. I, I mean, I know all the music because I'm alive, but uh, I haven't actually seen the movie. It's a, it's a good one. I, I mean, I guess we get to talk about Natalie Wood this episode, so maybe I'll bring up West Side Story a little bit later. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's one of the great movie musicals. Um, number two, Guns of Navarone. Number three, El Cid. Number four, The Absent-Minded Professor. Number five, The Parent Trap. Number six, La Dolce Vida, which I find really exciting. In the early 60s, people were actually going to the theater to see foreign movies. And, you know, lots of people were going. You know, just your average blockbuster hound might show up for a Fellini movie, which I I think is great. And it's a three-hour movie, so... (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was born at the wrong time, I think. Um, <laughs> Lover Come Back, number seven. King of Kings, number eight. Uh, number nine, 101 Dalmatians. So that's the third Disney movie of the year. I made the top ten. And number ten was Splendor in the Grass. And uh, some other good American movies that came out that year. Uh, the Hustler, Raisin in the Sun, Children's Hour, one, two, three, which we talked about uh, in an earlier episode. Jerry Lewis's The Errand Boy came out that year. Did, Elvis must have had a movie or two. Do you know what they were? He had Blue Hawaii, which was, uh, was kind of the Elvis movie, as most people uh, know it. Uh, that's a memorable one. Where does that rank for in, in Elvis movies for you? I actually don't love it, but it, it hits all of the things that you want in an Elvis film. Which we'll definitely have to do an episode on, on Elvis movies and get into that because uh, he, he has a very specific formula and, and Blue Hawaii is it. It has just everything that you ever expected in an Elvis film. Anyway, in France, uh, A Woman is a Woman was released in 1961. We covered that in an earlier episode. Last year, Marion Bad, Lola, um, the Jacques Demy. In Italy, we had La Notte and Il Posto. Uh, Britain, Taste of Honey came out. And Japan had Mothra and Yojimbo. 
And those are just a, that's just a taste of what came out in 1961, just to, to orient yourself to this year and, uh, and name a few things that you maybe have seen so you know uh, where the movies we're discussing sort of fall in the, in the whole scheme of things. Do you have any statistics for our uh, for our choices this week, like like you did last time? I think you you pointed out we did three color, three black and white, but I don't think that's the case this time. I think there are only two color, right? Yeah. Um, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, we only did one color movie. The other five were black and white. Really? Yeah. Which Jeez. just just goes to show how our tastes run, because. You know, most Hollywood movies were in, in color at this point. Hollywood was making so few movies, and when they did make a movie, they spent the extra dollars to make it in color just because Hollywood was uh, was dying. And they just, you know, TV had, had pretty much conquered the movies at this point and took a lot for people to show up. And I think that's why that people are going to see foreign movies in, in 1961. They're just, you know, wanting to see things that they couldn't see on TV, things that were a little edgier that dealt with sex in a more matter-of-fact way and just, you know, getting getting a, a raciness that you, you definitely wouldn't find on TV. Um, well, well, we certainly chose a lot of racy movies. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 all six of these are, are, are very much centered on sex. And women and sex in particular. Yeah, sort of. And that wasn't totally planned, and, and that kind of worked out that way. So, yeah, definitely in 61, it was on people's minds, at least. Or this was, you know, finally people getting tired of the 50s and, and actually thinking, ah, it's a new decade. Like, screw it. Let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the production code was still in effect at this time, but it was breaking down very quickly. We didn't ha yet have ratings. Uh, that was 19... 68-ish that uh, the, the, the uh, MPAA started putting ratings on, on movies. So we basically were still, like, all movies were coming out with, with no ratings. Sometimes they'd slap a no children admitted uh, on the poster and try and convince the, uh, the theaters to enforce that rule. But, you know, mostly it was just, uh, you know, American movies anyway were just trying to get away with whatever sexiness and violence they could but they that you know they they weren't risking too much though that said i think our the first movie that we have here for try which was your pick is uh pretty explicit with its sex scenes oh yeah les godelurus uh wise guys or i think it's more properly translated as the dandies which i think you know describes the movie a little better than uh than wise guys <laughs> Claude Chabrol's fourth movie, I guess. He was the, the first of the French New Wave directors to really get any attention. Uh, Le Beau Serge in 1958, often listed as the as the first French New Wave movie. And, you know, he's mostly known for his thrillers, but his, his early movies are more just young people getting into trouble type movies. Uh, this one is um, more of a comedy, for sure, than, uh, than his first three. And it for so long was unavailable. Well, it's still unavailable. I mean, the the, the way that uh, we were able to watch this was 
some uh, incomplete download that uh, we, we found in the, in the depths of the internet. Very legal, very legal. <laughs> you know, but for a movie like this, should we even be ashamed of ourselves? Because you just can't see this movie. It's um, clutch rolls. <laughs> Tell it to the cops, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for whatever reason, a whole bunch of Claude Chabrol's early 60s movies were not ever released in America, and uh, it was it was kind of decided that he was the sellout of the group, and he was making these pot boilers, these uh, these these thrillers that were just you know meant for uh, for mass audiences. Which is the more of them I see, the the more I realize that's not the case at all. They all have a very cynical sense of humor, and and are, are very much. Um, you know, down with the bourgeoisie, and I'm hoping, you know, there there's six or seven of these things that I've never seen, and um, I've seen 30 of his movies. He was he was pretty prolific. Have, have you seen any, Chabrol? No, I don't think I have, actually. This is, he's someone who I've completely missed out on. Him and actually, and Bernadette LaFont, who's in this movie, who I was totally blown away by, and now I'm like, oh, shit, this is like just <laughs> like a whole side of cinema I've just completely missed up until now. Oh yeah, she's great. She's in a bunch of the early Chabrol movies, and probably most people know her from The Mother and the Whore, uh, 1971 Jean Eustache movie with uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot. She's great in that. Truffaut is a gorgeous girl like me. She's the star. Very earthy, very sensuous. She's yeah. cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, um, she, she sells this, the, the idea that a, a woman can enjoy sex in this movie, for sure. So well, let me let me let me give a brief plot synopsis. So um, Jean Claude Brielli plays this um, wealthy bisexual Satanist, <laughs> who, <laughs> right? I mean that that is what yeah. It no, is. as you do, yeah. <laughs> um, who who comes from his country estate into Paris and parks in uh, in the uh, parking spot for uh, this wealthy. Uh, kid from from town who was somehow has, has claimed the spot as as his own and as a prank they move Briali's car onto the sidewalk and Briali is pissed off and and <laughs> vows to get revenge on this kid for doing this and it was you know it's a completely harmless prank he could drive it off the sidewalk with with no no problems didn't damage the car but uh his his pride was was really hurt and uh <laughs> He uh, he decides to um, get the coldest revenge imaginable. Yeah, for like years. <laughs> but this movie is all done in sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek way, so it's it's all kind of a joke. And that's what I love about this movie, and I think that a lot of people didn't know what to make of it because it's got this sort of this anarchic sensibility, this really kind of mischievous sense of humor. It's got a got a real down with the bourgeoisie sort of attitude about it and I I had a great time watching it but for whatever reason this movie began a downhill slide in, in people's estimation of uh, of Claude Chabrol but uh, you compared it to the best of Godard yeah I mean this this is Godard wishes he made this film there's so much and having you know when we already did our Anna Karina Godard episode which everyone should listen to, but this is exactly what he was trying to do in so many of those movies. And he doesn't totally get there in a lot of them. Some of them he gets there. But this movie was just that irreverent new wave heightening gone crazy in the best way possible. I also like I totally love this movie. It was so funny and so weird. <laughs> like, 
I mean, just again that like, yeah, as you say that, you know, maybe this the the like the shitty teenage bully pulls one prank that is completely, you know, inconsequential and uh Jean-Claude Reali just spends the rest of his life long conning this guy totally just like wants to ruin him forever and like and in the meanest <laughs> like he wants to like you know take that knife like shove it in there and just twist for years like that's it, it there's no rhyme or reason to it and it's hilarious and it's just as good as when you realize who Briali is when you see him in his house and he's like this satanist living with like a manservant very flamboyantly gay manservant yeah, and then, like, you know, and he's just, he's living this crazy life. I mean, just so, so much of this made no sense, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to feel bad for Arthur, the this kid, this sort of non-entity that he's getting his revenge on. I mean, he's just this, he's sponging off his rich uncle, and he's, you know, a waste of space, really. It's nothing, you know, I guess he's a likable enough chap but you never are uh, are, are too sad for him when uh, Briali decides to have his uh, his lady friend or perhaps a demon that he summoned from hell Ambroisine uh, to to uh, to <laughs> seduce just says so much <laughs> to uh, seduce Arthur and you know and they become sort of a uh, threesome in every way you can mean that I mean they're you never get the three of them in bed together, but it's it's very clear to Arthur that uh, Ambrosine is uh, you know fooling around with him as well as many other fellows, and as well as Ronald, the the character played by Briale. I mean, in one scene, Ronald tells Ambrosine to seduce his cousin, and so Ambrosine, who is you know at this time already going at the girlfriend of Arthur, so right in front of Arthur, she starts she. You know, seduces the the cousin of Ronald and gets him into bed, and and the you know Ronald and Arthur leave the apartment, and Arthur's you know knows exactly what's happening up in that bedroom, and so there's it's an open minded relationship, but you know eventually Arthur you know falls in love with Ambrosine, and they they plan to get married, and uh, you know at that point like right on the right on the eve of their wedding, or you know right after they announce their engagement, Ronald says, oh well I told Ambrosine to seduce you, and this is all revenge for that prank you played on me many years ago <laughs> <laughs> certainly um i i was very uh you know my my eyebrows were raised at, at how you know explicit the sex was in this film which for 1961 means that there were two young people who barely knew each other going home together and then both acknowledging that they will indeed be having sex and then it fades out before any touching happens <laughs> But then it and then it fades back in when they're both in bed naked, uh, you know, but completely covered. So, uh, yeah, I was I was impressed that they even got that far. And then, yeah, that uh, Ambrosine is just going with every single guy that she meets and loving it and no one's shaming her for it. She's just that's who she is. She's the hot girl who gets what she wants and enjoys life to the fullest. <laughs> yeah. And the more that Arthur falls in love with her, the more he wishes she weren't sleeping with every guy she wants to but kind of the the whole point of this movie is this idea of you know conventionality and to you know what's it, it seems like Briali's whole motivation is just to to shake people up and to you know disrupt the status quo and to you know shake people out of their their bourgeois melees and and uh, just you know like one of my favorite parts was the fundraiser for the orphans at, at Briali's aunt's house and he invites this uh, sexy dancer played by Stefano Drone 
who is uh, a big Claude Chabrol star. He was married to her for a while, and, and she's in just about every one of his movies up to a certain point. And she's, she does this, you know, sexy sort of African drumming dance, and it's... She's basically a stripper. Yeah, it's an incredible dance number. And then he follows it up with this old uh, vaudeville performer, right. you know, this 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 old lady who sings this you know twenty style ditty, and and that also people are are shocked by that as well. And it, and he has that great line where he's like, "Well, they're offended by beauty, and they're offended by oldness, you know, and you don't care about the orphans." And then he like starts throwing stink bombs again, right? <laughs> Because yeah. there's also where they go to an art gallery, all of them, and then they start to let off stink bombs and like firecrackers in the middle of the art gallery just to just to piss people off. I sort of got this idea that, that part of the point of this movie was this, I mean, at least there's a lot of referencing to like Roman times where they have the toga party where they have an orgy where no sex is allowed. And, right. Uh, but, and, uh, you know, at one point, uh, Briali's in a tub wearing this old Grecian mask and he's sort of... So good. Re- yeah, revealing the, his his plot to, to Arthur. And, and, you know, you get this idea that, that the point of this movie is that, you know, Briali is, you know, maybe some sort of a god, but he, it's sort of suggested that he's like... It's hearkening back to the, these old, these Grecian gods who, who you know, the destinies of of humans are, are determined by the fickleness of these gods, these, you know, just by their whims. And if they, if they smile on you, then you'll have good fortune. And if they decide they don't like you, then everything's going to be shitty for you. And, um, I mean, I don't know what ultimately bringing that, uh, you know, context to the, the movie does, but it seems very intentional that we're supposed to see this as sort of that the hands of, of fate working against Arthur or what did, what did you make? <laughs> what did you, did you make anything? Out of that, that no, I mean, God business. I was kind of hoping that you would tell me what the the point of the film was because that, I mean, I I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was like a ton of fun. I thought Jean Claude Briali was just amazing. It's like the best film even that I've seen him in. I feel like he gets so underused in so many films, and he was like a perfect deadpan comedic deliveries in this. Uh, there's just he keeps like making out passionately with a dog's ear. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I loved his like creepy Bacchus mask in the bath. I love that he just is just dedicate. He like stopped everything to dedicate his life to destroying another dude over a really minor slight. Everything. It was just so it, it was so funny and all that irreverence was so charming. And because like you're saying, it was based in a degree of symbolism. It didn't feel like it was being random for random sake. It felt funny. Like it felt like an actual commentary. But I have to say that. I don't totally know <laughs> what it was completely like in some ways this really felt like kind of a screw everyone film. I thought there were a lot of like, you know, middle fingers being thrown up to punk teens and the establishment and stereotypes or, you know, undermining expectations. But I also I don't know, like it nothing was completely focused other than the fact that it was irreverent like that was a <laughs> the strongest thread. So, I mean, I kind of enjoyed it for what that was. I, I did kind of get the sense that maybe I was missing out on some jokes by not being able to speak French. So I don't know if maybe, you know, it, w- it would be really interesting if anyone knows, uh, you know, who, who has seen this film and speaks French and maybe knows some context that maybe there's something we're missing or maybe that was just it. And if it was just it, it was great. Yeah, I mean, I got the sense that it was just this you know, embracing the spirit of the French New Wave and just, you know, cheaply made film that was kind of thrown together on the fly, that there wasn't, 
you know, whole lot of planning involved. They just shot a bunch of stuff and whatever worked best they included in the movie. And, you know, there's, I, there's definitely a place for movies like that in my heart, for sure. Well, apparently Godard put this in, in his, uh, like, top ten best movies ever, which I think uh, really, I mean, it really, you can see so much of him and in, in, in what he was trying to do in, in this film. So it was really fascinating in that, in that sense. Yeah, it's not as self-referential as Godard. It doesn't, it's not... It's not as serious as Godard. Well, I mean, Godard has a sense of humor too, but I feel like it's not drawing attention to the filmmaking in the way that Godard always does. Yeah, so why don't we move on to your wanna-see movie, the movie from 1961 that topped your watch list, Girl with a Suitcase. La Ragazza con la Valigia, directed by Valerio Zerlini. have seen a couple of his movies he did a movie called family diary that actually comes out in 62 which was great marcello mastriani movie that is uh, the most sepia film that was shot in color i've ever seen so <laughs> mm. i would recommend that one he also did um indian summer in 72 i guess we can't oh, talk alan, about that and yeah alan delon yeah and uh, violent summer another one <laughs> i've seen uh, that one that one's good 59 yeah so he's done he's done a couple films and this one um stars Claudia Cardinale and Jack Perrin and um I don't oh Jean-Maria Volante has a cameo sort of he he has some lines but um he's not a big character he's in two scenes But yeah I I I've just it's one of those movies I like Claudia Cardinale uh she's someone else who's just like so beautiful <laughs> and underused in a lot of movies you know i feel like she's always this woman who who's like the quiet one or the angry one and uh, she doesn't really get too much to do but in this movie she gets to completely shine I, she almost it her her role in this film reminded me actually like uh, maybe they couldn't get sophia loren <laughs> Because it feels very much like a Sophia Loren role. And it's the strongest acting I've seen her do. And it was really great. So, uh, you know, I, I don't love this film as much as you love this film, though. And I'm I'm very curious as to, you know, your take on it. But it's about a girl uh, named Aida, who's played by Claudia Cardinale. And um, she basically gets dumped by a rich boy. And shows up on his doorstep demanding that he, and he promised the world to her. He said that he was going to get her a recording deal because she's a nightclub singer. And then he disappears, literally kicks her out of the car and and, uh, drives away, essentially. And uh, she ends up meeting his brother, who's only 16 years old. And the brother, she's crying on the doorstep and the brother feels for her. So then the brother sort of starts to court her but he doesn't want to give away his brother uh and so it's basically the story of what's happening with her in her life and then what's happening with the brother who's um, named lorenzo two people that are kind of using each other and uh at the same time i don't both they're both uh kind of uh, naive and innocent yeah the, the problem with summarizing the plot is it's not very plot heavy it's it's definitely a character study and then you know the thematic it reminded me of 
I knew her well, actually, in, in a lot of ways, where it's this idea of the commodification of beauty and the value of a, a woman, or at least one particular woman, is, is just, you know, her physical beauty, and that's how she's made her way in the world, and she sort of just, you know, had to flip from one one man to another to, to further her career, and they just want to sleep with her. And, you know, when they're done with her, they just, uh, you know, dispose of her. And she, she meets the 16-year-old boy, and he is just absolutely, you know, it's love at first sight. He sees her and uh, just, you know, all he wants from her is to, you know, just spend time with her, to, you know, just look at her, to give her what she needs just so she'll, she'll be willing to hang out with him you know and she knows that she's using lorenzo the same way that she's been used every other man in her life she gets what she wants out of them because they think she's pretty but there's there's this innocence to lorenzo that you know she she knows that it's not gonna just end in sex the way it does with every other man who is willing to help her out you know and he's willing to listen to her she'll she tells him stories of her her life in the in nightclubs and he hangs on every word and just you know she, he you know appreciates her in a way that that none of these other men seem to that you know that he he seems to find this depth in her that no one else has ever acknowledged but you realize eventually that what's going on here is that Lorenzo is just he doesn't know what to do when he's in love with a woman and it, it's sort of you know just this first love thing where he's never going to put a move on her you know because he's so innocent he wants from her the same thing that every other man wants. He just doesn't know how to go about doing that. Yeah, that was the thing that was a bit of a bummer about this movie was that you have this young boy who who is so in love with her and, and giving her the attention that she wants because he's not actively trying to sleep with her. But at the end of the day, he is exactly the same as all of these other guys. He's manipulating her and he's doing all these things to her. Every time he tells her, the, he says, I swear to her a lot. She says, swear to me that you're not that you're going to tell me the truth or, or, you know, swear to me that you're going to you're not going to like leave me or whatever. And and not and not in a romantic way, even it'll be like, meet me at this, <laughs> meet me tomorrow at X, Y, Z. And, and, you know, he'll say, I swear. But every single time he says, I swear, he's lying. And and every single time that he thinks that he's building a deeper connection with her, you know, he's doing things like giving her gifts or paying for her hotel or upgrading her hotel, you know, and it's not really a skin off his back because he's super rich, mm-hmm. but he ends up stealing in, from his own family in order to do all these things that uh, is really the only reason why she's staying in his orbit, because at the end of the day, she's incredibly poor. She's being, uh, you know, left by all of these men and she quite frankly needs it. You know, you really don't, you don't ever get the sense that even though the two of them are, are using each other, you don't get the sense that it's malicious in any way uh, by her, especially even though I, you know, I think she could be written off as being a gold digger or something. But the truth is, you know, all these men are, are taking from her. And so now she has a man that she can kind of take from. But even she has her doubts about it. And she tries to keep him at arm's length. And, you know, there is a, a great scene where they're all at this hotel and this like really creepy, rich old guy is like trying to seduce her and and thinks that essentially she's a you know a prostitute or that she will be for the right price and you know Lorenzo's watching this happen and he gets really drunk and you know he's a little too young to drink and then his reaction to her is this sort of you know calling her out for how could you do this to me kind of stuff and it's and it's so depressing because it's just like yeah it's just this is a smaller version of all of these other men mm-hmm. but he doesn't you know he hasn't gotten there yet to really hurt her 
uh, and she, but she sees it all happening. You know, she's, she's just, just another dead end for her, unfortunately. Yeah. I love how cynical the movie is. I mean, on the, on the surface, like these two people, Aida and Lorenzo, they're just so nice to each other and you sort of like watching them spend time with each other. And there's something so innocent about their relationship, but you realize in the end that it really is no different and that no one's ever nice to you because you deserve it. They always want something from you. And so it's, you know, it's sort of a, like, not men are bastards, but everybody's a bastard. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's misanthropic more than anything. It's just like every, everything has a price. It's, uh, I don't know, but there's also a sweetness about it too. And I, I think the way it, it pulls the rug out from under this sort of deceptively sweet relationship is really what gets me with this movie and that final shot, the, how it ends, you know, he said, he says, take this love letter before he gets on the train back to where he came from and she opens it up and it's an envelope full of money and it's just you know another just you know she's she's still just she's still just a whore (laughs) (laughs) god i thought you were going to talk about that scene where they're kissing on the beach which i think is probably every 16 year old boy's fantasy (laughs) yeah well yeah i mean that's their relationship is consummated and but that's all that he really wanted out of her. He wanted to make out with her a little bit because that's all he knows and that's all he's you know, at his age he's comfortable doing. So, you know, in his mind it's it's a consummated affair, but in her mind she's just sort of doing this this nice boy a favor by giving him a few kisses. I think she appreciates it, though. There's definitely something really innocent about her that, you know, she has such a naive worldview, even though she continually gets screwed over. And I think that there there was definitely something very believable and, you know, honest about that portrayal of her that, you know, she isn't she's definitely not this bitch that's trying to take from these men and, and use them. She knows how to play the game, but she keeps getting fooled into thinking, oh, no, maybe they actually do love me. And then, nope, they don't. <laughs> which is sad and and you know the all the scenes with piero or old boyfriend those scenes are terrible because then you really see like here's the difference too is that you know these are guys who were actively hitting her and they have some gripes with her that are legitimate too that maybe she took money from them and, and disappeared or that she didn't show up for the job or something but i mean obviously not enough to warrant being uh physically abused but yeah, or, you know, or she's, like, dating men to get free food and stuff like that, <laughs> which is, a you know, which is works. It works, so. <laughs> it all hinges on Cardinale's performance, too, because you never dislike her. You never feel like she's using people. You never feel like she's using Laurent. Well, you know, maybe at a certain point you feel like, okay, you're kind of abusing your relationship, his innocence a bit here, asking for all this stuff from Lorenzo and and you know when the when the when his teacher calls her out on it she she realizes she she repents immediately and realizes oh yeah you know you're right I shouldn't be treating this boy this way I shouldn't be leading him on and so you know she's not the typical gold digger at all even though that's how she's had to live to get by yeah, you feel like she's almost playing out like a teenagerdom that she didn't get a chance to have with this relationship, which and which honestly flirts with some sort of vaguely pedophilic, <laughs> uh, at least for, for me as an American watching it now. I'm pretty sure that the age of consent in Italy is pretty low. <laughs> so I don't know that that was really what this movie was meant to be about. And then again, there's so many Italian movies about 30 year old men creeping on like 16 year old girls. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything 
immoral about their relationship. <laughs> I will say that the, the movie is beautiful. There's some really gorgeous camera work in this film and really gorgeous scenes. Like that scene of them kissing on the beach at the end. This just lighting was, everything was so sharp and so like focused in this film. And, you know, Zerlini's direction is just really breathtaking in uh, a handful of these shots in this film. Yeah, I mean, I just like it because it's just a small, quiet movie that sort of says a lot about the relationships between men and women and it sort of has a big punch at the end that sort of creeps up on you. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of movies that are little character studies that, that end up carrying a lot of weight. I want that polka dot dress she gets. Hmm, that's a nice <laughs> dress. <laughs> but um, even more beautiful to look at than uh, than girl with a suitcase was uh, the movie that i chose as uh, as one of my all-time favorites from 1961 the movie that i would marry if i could marry a movie from 1961 <laughs> and that's the innocence directed by jack clayton James's Turn of the Screw. And uh, the, the camera work by Freddie Francis is unbelievable. We've watched a number of movies that he's shot. Uh, Night Must Fall, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. He did a lot of the, the British New Wave movies. Room at the Top he shot, also directed by Jack Clayton. He shot The Elephant Man, but he, he's just brilliant, like moody, black and white, very gothic style to his camera work and he he was a director too but it was mostly just you know schlocky hammer or amicus british horror movies uh, I, I think he's really notable as a cinematographer more than as a director yeah i mean this the movie is absolutely gorgeous it, it's funny um it definitely now that you're mentioning it i'm like oh yeah it looks exactly like all those other movies <laughs> <laughs> So this is, um, if you're not familiar with the story of uh, Turn of the Screw, it's about a governess uh, named Miss Giddens, who's uh, played by Deborah Carr in this movie, and she's left in charge of these uh, the orphan boy and girl who um, whose uncle is just can't be bothered to raise them. Their, their rich uncle pays her to just go to his country estate and raise these children as her own and, you know, make every decision. Don't consult him about anything. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So she goes and uh, sort of discovers this rather sordid history, um, a morbid sordid history um, of the previous caretakers of the, these children and sort of uh, sparks her imagination. And she either does or does not see the ghosts of uh, Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, the, the previous caretakers at, at this estate who have recently died and are, are haunting the, uh, haunting her anyway. And she thinks she, they're haunting the children and, and for good reason, because there, there's some, some pretty nasty business going on in the house uh, before they died. But I, the way that the ambiguity is dealt with in this movie is really what I find incredible about it. The story itself is is notable. You know, a lot of people discuss that the way Henry James writes the story, it's, you know, are there actually ghosts or is it all just in Miss Giddens' imagination? And I feel like the movie had 
has done really just an amazing job of portraying that that ambiguity. When you see the ghosts, it's always from her perspective, and you know you really never know what's in her imagination and and what's not. And I find it just a totally compelling ghost story horror movie, whether they're ghosts or not. I watched. I've watched this movie before. It was funny. I, I forgot that I had seen. I've I've read the book. I've seen many movie iterations of this. I had forgotten that I had watched this until I was watching it, and then I, I had, like it all came rushing back to me. So Turn of the Screw is is nothing new to me. But I have to say that watching this again for this podcast, I had like a, a bit of a revelation about this film and basically about, you know, I mean, it's about like the cruelty of adults. I mean, which is just what this this movie is about. But the thing that, that got to me this time around was that it, it reminded me like people who can, you know, they only think of their own perverse fantasies and they can't even consider anyone else. You know, they can't see past it. And it was like, oh, like, this is why we have people who believe in, like, false flag shootings and shit, you know? Like, they're <laughs> they're so convinced that, that their hang-ups and their fears are the truth, that they are happy to cause chaos and destruction and, and literally death to everyone around them just to, what, scratch this itch? You know, it's like she has this, like, active imagination, and she learns all of these details, and then she then she starts to see patterns and clues and things that aren't actually there, and then every smile turns into a wicked sign, and, like, everything that someone says is misconstrued to, to fit into her mind's design of what she imagines, and now she's suddenly, you know, she's creating this new meeting. And of course, only she can solve it. And she's forcing these children into fitting into a, a puzzle piece that they don't fit into. You know, it's like now they have to confront these painful traumas uh, in this like really awful way. <laughs> but there's no cruelty on her part. I mean, it's really she really she I mean, no intentional cruelty. She sees herself as saving these children. And that's why she keeps you know, pushing forward. She keeps saying, well, maybe I'm crazy, but what if I'm not? We've got to save these children. She really thinks that she's working in their best interest. I don't think that she's just, and I, but I, I think that's probably true for any conspiracy theorist. That's what I was going to say. I mean, like, like yeah. that's like people who believe in like conversion therapy think they're doing some like God's work or whatever the fuck, which is the same thing as, <laughs> as what uh, Deborah Carr's doing in this because she has this, you know, idea of what sex is and, and what children should know. And I agree. She's not, she's not wicked. She doesn't, she's not doing any of this out of malice, but I mean, she, she's the most wicked of everybody by the end of the film. Definitely. I mean, she kills a child. She scares (laughs) him to death. I love how we get no backstory on her whatsoever. We don't know what her history is or what she's bringing to this relationship with the children. And, and I mean, that's part of what makes the ambiguity work so well, but what her motivation is 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 just so unclear like clearly there's this kind of misplaced maternal instinct there and there's this you know repressed sexuality where she herself is one of the innocents of the title of the, of the movie and in fact in a lot of ways she's more innocent than the children because the the children may or may not have been exposed to some sexual abuse, uh, you know, in the hands of of their previous caretakers. A lot of what her issue is can, is just this sort of anxiety over sex. And she's sort of so excited by the idea of these, the previous caretakers relationship, Peter Quint and Miss Jessel. And I think 
you know, just her inexperience with sex and this idea that there are people in this house before her having sex is just part of what drives her a little bit crazy. I do kind of wonder if maybe she was abused. You know, otherwise her reaction is so over the top to this idea of, you know, like, oh, maybe the children. Uh, I think like even the movie, I didn't get the sense in the film for sure in the book or in other versions of this. I feel like it's they really kind of emphasize that maybe these children had been sexually abused. In the in this film, I only got the sense that maybe they had witnessed sex happening. <laughs> That's yeah. When when Mrs. Gross sort of talks about what happened when she finally, you know, talks about some of the, the awful things that happened in the house. All she she will admit to is that Quint and Miss Jessel were having sex in rooms in the house with, with the doors open and, you know, the children may or may not have seen something. But then all you really see in the children in the film is, is basically in Miles, the the boy that you, you know, Miles, uh, by the end, he, you know, he's acting out. And, and in the end, you definitely see that he definitely picked up on what Peter Quint, this uh, driver, right? He, you know, what his sort of abusive language, for sure, and his aggressive behavior. You definitely get the sense that maybe he was influenced by that, um, which which is, a, you know, it's a, a form of abuse for sure that you're teaching this child to, to abuse other people. But then there's that great line that's just super heartbreaking where he basically, you know, and he's acting out in school. He gets he comes back home because he was kicked out of school and no one wants to ask him and no one knows why. And then there's this line where he says to Miss Giddens, he says, um, you know, it's oh, it's terrible to feel unwanted. And it becomes so clear that basically that, you know, that that's really the, the problem here is that, you know, the uncle wants nothing to do with them. They have no parents. They have no one that consistently loves them. And then you have this mad woman who's coming in and so obsessed about like, well, what, what have they, oh, what could have they have done that she can't even actually do the job that she was, you know, hired to do, which is to actually be there in a support position. And it's, it's just like, it's so heartbreaking to sort of just see, like to see these kids be like subject to even worse torture, essentially. And then, of course, everyone gets driven to madness by the end. Well, and you were talking about the pedophilia in uh, Girl with a Suitcase. The, you know, there's, there's, there are moments in the relationship between Miss Giddens and Miles that, uh, that really cross a few lines. There's a kiss in there that's quite awkward and, and you you feel like there's something almost lustful in the way that Miss Giddens is regarding Miles, and that's pretty uncomfortable, and, and leads to the whole sexual horror that's going on in this movie. And I think I'm such a sucker for for that type of drama in a movie where there's this huge evil secret that sort of drives all of the drama in the movie, but you're never completely let in on what it was exactly. You get hints and, you know, you sort of have a vague notion of what this big evil thing that happened was, but the vagueness of it, it you know, allows the viewer to sort of blow it up in their imaginations into, you know, something, you know, far worse than, they assume it's something even worse than what they can imagine. And it's sort of, and I love the way that the secret is, blown up in the audience's mind this, the same way that it's blown up in Miss Giddens' mind. And, and it's just, we feel like, oh my God, this is the most horrible thing. Uh, you know, the fact that we d don't know exactly what it is means it has to be the, the m most awful thing that has ever happened to anybody. And part of why I love movies that are based on Tennessee Williams plays so much, uh, there's always this sort of thing, this sort of big, 
dark, ugly secret that you never really understand. And, and that, as a dramatic tool, I, I fall for it every time. I would much rather have things unexplained than, than have everything tied up neatly with a bow at the end and, and have the psychiatrist explain exactly why Norman Bates dressed up as his mother and killed people. And Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, but I, I agree, like, as far as movies go, but it was funny, you know, because that, like, exactly that was what made me so angry watching this this time around. Because, again, it just, it goes back into, like, just that ignorance. It's like, you know, she looks at a child and all she can see is, is sex. All she can see is what, you know, what this child may or may not have been subjected to and how corrupt he is. And now suddenly that's like, you know, she goes into this, this madness and, and frantic, you know, what, what, how, how much does he know to the point where she just destroys it, which to me right now just feels like where we're going as a country. (laughs) It was just like, just totally, I was like, oh man, like this, this is kind of where we're at right now. I feel like this sort of unfortunately feels very relevant. But that said, I mean, if I was alone in a mansion in the country like that, I'd probably 100% go insane. Especially if it had all those extreme shadows uh, that, oh, God, uh, that yes. Freddie Francis brings to the, the lighting in that mansion. Uh, I'm, it would, I would have shit myself and ran out of there like ASAP. Actually, this movie, um, it also reminded me of uh, Elio Petri's A Quiet Place in the Country, which hopefully we'll talk about in a future episode. I think there's some some interesting similar themes. I haven't seen that. But I do want to do Elio Petri. Well, speaking of sexual madness... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? uh, Splendor in the Grass was, was my pick for a love. And I just adore this film so much. This is uh, Ilya Kazan, uh, Natalie Wood, Warren Beatty, a bunch of people, a bunch of Gary Lockwood's in it for five seconds playing toots. <laughs> Sandy Dennis, I think, was probably one of her first movies as, as one of Dini's classmates. Barbara Loden is in there as uh, Bud's sister. Barbara Loden, who went on to marry Ilya Kazan and, and, and make one of the most well-regarded independent films of the 70s, Wanda. She's really good in this movie. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this one, uh, you know, I'm presuming that this is one of these films that most people have seen. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and, and see it because it's, I think it's just fantastic. It's really just one of the best movies. It's basically about two teens who fall in love and then, you know, they break up because... Because of family and circumstance and and a whole bunch of stuff. And what I love about this movie is that it works on so many levels. Like you were describing before, it's a character study. Natalie Woods Deany, you know, is just completely madly in love with Bud Stamper, who's Warren Beatty, and his family essentially owns the town. They're very, uh, they have, they're into oil, I believe. And and this takes place in like the 20s. 
and uh, they live in Kansas, so this is kind of like all, all there is, and they lucked out that Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty were born in the same town in Kansas because uh, that's two good-looking people. Mm-hmm. But basically, uh, Beatty's uh, father and family is trying to lure him away. His dad, uh, you know, is just obsessed with him going to college and, and doing better for himself, and he has no real interest in that. He actually wants to just get married and start a farm, you know, and on top of all of this, they're, they're just both desperately horny and and uh, really want to get married so they can finally have sex and it starts to just eat away at at bd who's being told no you have to wait another four years and go to college and don't marry her you might meet someone better essentially and meanwhile she's her whole life is on hold because she wants to marry him and now that he's going to college now she doesn't really know what to do with herself has there ever been a movie more about sex? I mean, I think every single line of dialogue in this movie has to do with sex. And should I? I want to. I, I'm not ready. I, You know, you shouldn't. You Nice girls don't. I, you know, it's everything. I mean, it's in the end, the movie is not actually about sex at all. But sex is on the minds of everybody all the time in this movie. I mean, really, it's about doing what your parents say and whether your parents are always right and whether it's uh if it's better to follow your own heart or to to follow your parents wishes i guess that's well that's what it boils down to yeah i mean like what i adore about this movie because i mean like teenage love stuff is really not (laughs) my bag so much but um i love this movie because it just there's so many levels to it it's it's two nuanced portrayals of these teenagers and their and their lost love and it's about how timing is is really the stronger factor in happily ever after than than passion is uh it's about parents it's as you said about waking up to the flaws of your parents and how being smothered with kindness or guilt is just as equally oppressive it's about empathy and sympathy uh, and not seeing people as flat, but but seeing them as individuals and who are trying their best uh, with the hands they've been dealt. You know, the way that Warren Beatty's sister or her strife is dealt with is especially horrifying and touching in this movie, uh, which, you know, the movie is so much about how women are treated and dismissed, about how Hollywood endings quite literally drive you crazy <laughs> and how rigid religious and, and societal constraints can be and how they can ruin people's lives when they're enforced without explanation and without the choice being made that this is something that you want to follow and then yeah as you, as you're saying half of this movie could be solved with just like acknowledging or allowing premarital sex or like at bare minimum masturbation <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's for women you, you you fall into one of two categories you're a good girl or you're a bad girl and just to acknowledge that you can be bad and good at the same time would cure everybody's problems in this movie yeah i mean like you have that great scene with natalie wood saying to her mother didn't you want to have sex essentially with with dad when you met him and and she's like women don't enjoy these things the way a man does you just get you get her husband to come close so you can have children you know and then she's hugging her in bed and and then there's the you know Beatty's sister Ginny is is just uh, barbara loden is is amazing in this because she's basically a wild flapper and we come to see her just as she's had an abortion and the family is ashamed of her and they think that she's just crazy and she gets drunk a lot uh, and there's just this horrifying horrifying scene in this film where she's at this new year's party and she gets so drunk out of her mind and just this gang of shady men are just waiting for her to pass out so they can rape her not even shady men they're just these all the all the men at the party it's like every single man at that party went outside when when she left so that 
they could follow her and have sex with her or you know. into the parking lot like they don't even get out of the parking lot like they wait till she passes out in a, in a car and i mean like and she's just totally it's so creepy and, and terrible and you're right i mean like they're they're creeps <laughs> and shady but like they are as characters they're they're just meant to be the the normal guys that are just looking to get laid and the only man who stands up for her is warren Beatty. it's her brother and it's also, it's just such a traumatic scene and it's just so depressing, uh, you know, and because she's this bad girl, no one in the film has any sympathy for her. Even her brother, you know, he, he is defending her, you know, he literally pulls this guy off of her, like humping her in a car and beats the shit out of him and then gets the shit beaten out of him. And, you know, even then he still sort of dismisses his sister afterward. And, and you know, it's, it's... Yeah, no, he's he's disgusted by her, but, you know, he's still going to defend her. And then there's also that really, the, the other creepy scene in this film is when Natalie Wood is just begging him. She's saying she's so in love with him and he tells her, get on your knees, slave. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's like clearly this like you know that he's dealing with like a complete lack of control you know his father is controlling everything and now here he is with this woman who's just saying like i'll do anything for you and his initial reaction is to control her and he regrets it immediately because she starts crying well and it's such coded oral sex too it's like come on baby just give me a blowjob yeah that's all i need and it's yeah it's, it's pretty shocking it's funny to watch their two conflicting acting styles. I mean, Beatty is all, you know, this like method acting, you know, James Deanish, like, you know, inarticulate mess of emotions. Whereas Natalie Wood is such a classical actor. Like, I, I think she's incredible to watch in this movie. Like every thought that goes through her head is, is right there on her face. And the way that she swings back and forth between these extremes of emotion and she you know, she really displays how good she is in this movie. Uh, West Side Story, which was her big hit of the year, I don't think she's particularly good. But in this, she's she's incredible. Like, I, I just, the whole movie for me is just watching her and, and watching how she behaves and just reading the whole movie through her performance is, is what really sells this movie for me. Oh, yeah. That's the thing, too, is that this movie, again, like, to describe it, it's just like a teen love story, you know? And I have gotten into a lot of trouble. I feel like every time I'm like, well, no one gets married out of high school. Everyone's like, uh, Jenna, my parents got married out of high school. <laughs> like, I, I imagine most teen love stories end. And, and for me, I'm super cynical. Like, I can't watch all of these movies on Netflix that everyone's like, oh, it's so cute. And I'm like, whatever. They're not going to get, like, whatever. This is a, they're teen. They don't know what they're doing. But thanks to, uh, you know, Natalie Wood in this film, definitely, there is just so much nuance and there's so much happening and you feel so bad for her, even though there's total melodramatic moments in this movie. There's like so much that is is almost even laughable. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't fall for it dramatically, really. I think it's pretty baggy. It doesn't all hold together. Some of the plot developments are patently ridiculous. And I mean, it's... It's written by William Inge, who I don't think it was based on a play of his. I think he it was an original screenplay that he wrote. But I've always thought of him as like a second-rate Tennessee Williams. <laughs> I mean, he's sort of, he's always discussed and, you know, I think maybe he was a protege of Tennessee Williams or something like that. And, you know, both gay playwrights who were sort of, if you were in the know, you, you, you knew that they were gay anyway. And it, you could always kind of read that message into their plays. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, honestly, I haven't read 
any William Inge. I've seen Picnic and Bus Stop, a couple of other movies that are based on his plays, but it seems like his stories are about the problems that arise from people suppressing their passions, their, their natural instincts. You know, that's fine, but a little simple. And I think there's some, something about Tennessee Williams, the way I, I think he, he's more about people suppressing their unnatural desires. Like he's sort of, there's something sort of self-loathing about Tennessee Williams that I'm really drawn to in, in a way that I'm not with William Inge. And, and there's, everything seems very on the surface in, in this movie in a way that uh, I feel like you can dig a lot deeper with Tennessee Williams. But, but here I am talking about Tennessee Williams again. And, we're not doing any of his movies this week, so I, I, should, I should stop bringing him up. I don't know. this. I think this movie completely works. There's plenty that wouldn't, but whenever the ball gets dropped, it gets saved by other f- factors. You know, like maybe this is a cheesy line or this is a cheesy moment, but the acting is so good. Or Eli Kazan, is, he got started on stage, and he's definitely you know an actor's director. And I think when this movie you know, dramatically lets me down there there's always you know there's a performance in there that 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 always saves it agreed i will say that you know as 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 much as i just put down like a bunch of teens uh i i do think that there there is something that gets me on on the romance level for this film that sort of naive love and and uh expectations and that basically the timing is off you know that that everything else is perfect they can all be soulmates but the timing was off and so now they're they go off to somewhere else and they get new soulmates like that that to me is always like super heartbreaking <laughs> yeah the coda on this movie really gets me when Deanie gets out of the mental institution after two years there i think is it more than two years at least two I don't years know, she goes and finds Bud, who's married to uh, Angelina, just this waitress that he met when he was going to Yale. You know, they're running a farm, and they have a, a child and, a, and another baby on the way. But that's not even sad. It's, it's sort of, you're almost sort of relieved that these two didn't get married. If they had gotten together, it really wouldn't have worked out. They needed this sort of time to figure themselves out a little bit. And... Yeah, and she shows up in that white, a beautiful white dress, and he's covered in dirt. So they can't even touch each other if they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> it's depressing. Good old depressing, life-ruining, mental breakdown romance. That's my kind of shit. My memory of this movie was that it's so much more depressing than I ended up finding it this time through. My memory of it was she just ends up going crazy because she can't have sex and ends up in a mental institution. So it's just female hysteria, sexual repression type stuff. But it's there's a lot more to it than that in the, in the coda. Makes me realize what this movie really is about. And it's, you know, it's just about finding yourself. Yeah, definitely. It, that's what I love for sure is the empathy that, that goes into to women, uh, the female characters in this film, is, is excellent. And there's so much where people can be dismissed and probably were dismissed even at the time as like hysteria or what have you. But like when she goes crazy, you feel it. You know, I don't blame her whatsoever. And that's another instance where she's about to get date raped and she says just gets out of the car. I don't know. I love that movie. But now let's get into things we hate. And I sure hate Akatone.
Actually, it wasn't that hard to get through this time, but I still don't like it at all. I'm not a fan of Pier Paolo Pasolini, and I keep trying. Like, I, you know, I, I just, I don't know when I'm going to give up, but I, I feel like I need to see all his movies before I write him off completely. <laughs> and I thought choosing Akatone, a movie that I don't like at all, as my hate and revisiting it, I might warm up to it a bit and, and see what others see in this movie. But it's, it's not for me. I will say it's very interesting that this time along, typically we tend to agree on films, but this time for both of our hates, the opposite happened where you hated it, I liked it, and I hated it, you liked it. Yeah, we do. I, I feel like we tend to agree a little bit too much. It's nice when uh, when we disagree. I feel like Paint Your Wagon was the other real controversy we had. <laughs> I feel like we need like uh, you know boxing bells to go off right now. Because I, I want to know what, why you hate this movie. Because I, I thought it was fine. Oh, it's just, you know, like gutter poetry bullshit. It's just, you know, rubbing your face in, the, in the, these awful lives of these poor people who, um, you know, it's prostitutes and, and pimps and thieves and, you know, people who have no way of feeding themselves if they don't resort to, you know, some kind of criminal act. But you have to, there's only one kind of criminal you can be. You're, if you're a pimp, you're a pimp. And that's all you can do. You, you, you know, you can't be a thief if you're a pimp. You, and if you don't have a prostitute that you can pimp, then you starve to death. <laughs> or you, or you, you get, you know, you drive off on a, on a motorcycle and get run over by a car. Am, am I supposed to care about what happens to Akatone? That he's just a m- miserable... <laughs> jerk i hate him and his bros like the the all these guys who hang out at the table doing nothing all day long and oh, just like, it oh. <laughs> they have great uh, neapolitan accents but you know i really don't like these guidos these sopranos gangster type guys who just hang out and just assholes to women and uh, you know you're supposed to find their joking around really charming and amusing and and I think, like, that's my real problem with this movie. If there was some kind of dark sense of humor to it, it might have saved it for me. But there's, n- it's, it's absolutely serious. The only kind of levity you get are these, like, Akatone and his buddies ribbing each other. And it's not amusing to me. I just don't care about these people. And But most of all, I just find it all unconvincing. Like, it just feels so amateurish that, you know, I never... I mean, they're all non-actors. Like, nobody in this movie is a trained actor. They're just, they are these people that they're playing, basically. And it's not that. Like, I can handle plenty of, you know, Brisson or Russellini or or whoever using non-actors the right way. But it doesn't work in this movie. And I don't know if it's Pasolini's lack of skill as a filmmaker. Ooh, shots fired. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he brings in this classical music. um, By Bach. Bach, yeah. And, you know, over this, like, so you've got this, like, highbrow music playing over this glorification of slum life, and it just does not work. Like, when it gets into popular jazz, it plays a little bit later in the movie that I I think works a lot better, and I start to get into it a little bit. But, yeah, the tone of this movie just does nothing for me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get it. I, like... 
I don't particularly disagree with anything you said. I mean, like, this didn't wow me. But I will say, I definitely don't think that Pasolini is amateurish in this film. I thought this movie looks beautiful. There's some really stunning shots and framing. I love that the there's a great scene with the camera moving backwards as, as people are walking towards the camera. Yeah, it goes back to that tracking <laughs> shot. It, you know, it's in there at least twice. And it's like, oh, let's... It worked so well the first time. Let's do it again. Let's just let's just dolly this camera backwards while people are walking. All right. Well, it. here's what I think. Here, here's <laughs> what I found intriguing about this film is that, uh, to be fair, I, I I was sort of mixed on how to feel about it because it does feel it feels contrarian, which I think is what you didn't like. Like it feels very openly contrarian. You have to root for the opposite of what you want to be rooting for to watch this film. But I think what he was doing was that this was like an inverse Bible story, like about a man sacrificing others to stay ahead. And his first girlfriend being named Madalena, you know, Magdalene. And then, you know, I think that there's some sure there's a lot more of this, but I feel like a lot of what I know about Catholicism comes from watching Italian <laughs> movies. But I, I actually end up, I have a kind of weird fascination with Catholic movies like that because I, I find there's like all this sort of rich symbolism and kind of interesting something behind it. Like it's not always, sometimes it's about, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, like the Polish films that we were watching, you know, like I, I kind of like when it when it's about like the dynamics of religion versus humanity, you know, trying to live up to something and, and while still being down in the dirt. Uh, as Disney, there's that scene where he rubs dirt in his face. I did like that visual. Yeah, I enjoyed moments of this, and I enjoyed sort of that that he was working towards something. But I think I missed a lot of it again. This is another movie where I'm like, I'd love to to get someone who knows more about Catholicism or even just the Bible than I do, and to to see like, ah, oh, yes, in this moment he is very clearly paralleling X Y Z because it definitely felt like that that this was following that course. And then I think on the other side that there was a sort of message about capitalism corrupting you that you're sort of damned if you do damned if you don't i don't know that that came together for me like i don't know that this film was completely effective in what he was trying to do or if i'm just missing as i was saying like that like a puzzle piece Hmm. the capitalist message doesn't come across at all because this you know these guys just refuse to work and you know women are are commodified in this movie but it's it's almost an afterthought. But I do agree that he was aiming for, for a lot of religious symbolism there, and that's part of what I don't think works in this movie. It's got this like super extreme realism. You're supposed to capture the dirt and grime of these people's lives but at the same time it's got this you know this Bach music and it's trying to like it's throwing all these symbols at you and it's trying to get you to compare Akatone to Jesus Christ and it doesn't work on those two levels and for me anyway I mean I, I am absolutely willing to admit that it's a failing on my part that I can't warm up to Pasolini at all I mean, he's pretentious, for sure. Yeah. Now, how did you feel about that dream sequence? Because that's something that people seem to adore. And I actually, considering that's kind of more of my shit, where I love overt symbolism, but I actually didn't love that dream. No, it, it seemed obvious and unnecessary, really. It felt to me like, oh, if I'm going to kill Akatone at the end here, but we can't make it seem like it's coming out of nowhere. So let's have him have a dream where he dies right before he actually dies so that people aren't too surprised when it happens. 
I mean, it's really, you want him to die. Like, there's no place for Akatone in this world. You don't want there to be. Like, he, he refuses to work to feed himself. He refuses to do anything except exploit women in order to put food on his table. And I, <laughs> good, good riddance, you know? I, I, I kind of suspect that perhaps we're both too American to enjoy this movie <laughs> because I think that there is definitely like an attitude of like, cause I also, I had a hard time staying focused on, on someone who refuses to make any effort for anything other than using people. And I'm kind of like, not that I am the like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of person, but like watching this, I was like, well, why don't you fucking get a job? <laughs> <laughs> well, he tried for half a day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> So I, I can see why you don't like this. But I, I thought it was pretty good. I don't know. At the end of the day, like, there were definitely, you know, visually there were there were some really brilliant moments. I loved him jumping off the bridge. I did like the banter to a degree. Certainly there's much for for women in this movie. But I don't know. It intrigued me. for Considering this was like his, wasn't this his first film? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had co-directed or he definitely was involved in movies before this. But this is the first one that he Directed. That seems promising to me. <laughs> but he was, yeah, I mean, he was a well, he was a very popular poet and novelist before he got involved in movies at all. And this, I think this first movie was very much in keeping with the sorts of things that he wrote before he was a filmmaker. But yeah, for as non-women centric as this movie is, it actually does, you know, whenever there's, when Stella or Madalena are on the screen, it, it sort of comes to life for me a little bit. Or even his, uh, Akatone's uh, baby mama there, who's voiced by Monica Vitti. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. I could, I could tell immediately. I think I've probably watched too many Monica Vitti movies, <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I had to look it up and I was like, yes, I knew it. <laughs> but, um, the women are strong characters in the, in the little bit of screen time that, they each get, and I think they're all engaging performers, but then, you know, it just goes back to Akatone doing nothing, scrounging for most of the runtime. See, then that's when I get back to this sort of, because he, you know, he's always, he. they say too, there's a line that they say, it's always a holiday for us. And I feel like that's when it gets into that skewering of capitalism because the deep desire of all capitalists is to just be handed shit because you think you deserve it. Like even like this is exactly what, you know, everyone accuses the poor of wanting, but that's exactly what the, the rich want, you know, is overinflating your importance in the food chain and thinking that you've gotten to this spot because you deserve it, even though you're it's built on the backs of so many other people worked a lot harder than you have yeah harder than you and in like you know a tire shop or whatever <laughs> those like women are working in this awful factory and then there's that line too where the where one of these other pimps says like you know like lincoln freed the slaves and in italy we're just getting started with them or something it, it's just like it, it just seemed very much like a skewering of like that that kind of sh shitty attitude but but again it's like yeah do i want to spend two hours like with these guys like i don't know not really it's not really my... <laughs> i just want pasolini to try a little harder damn <laughs> convince me <laughs> i don't know i mean i have the same complaint about plenty of filmmakers von trier is one it's just you know you gotta if you don't work hard on the things that i find important in a movie then then fuck you <laughs> yeah then don't don't make me watch your movie I'm fine with other people liking your movie, but don't make me watch it. Well, at least there's no redemption for Akatoni, as you said. You know, he dies. <laughs> he <laughs> strives to be low, and and that's what he and then he gets killed, and 
like the the apex of his life were like you know the highest moments of this film which is like pretty pathetic <laughs> and just scenes like where he you know he's he's patting his son on the head and you realize it's just so he can steal his necklace so he can have a meal is like you're supposed to that's supposed to get you right in the guts you're supposed to be like oh life is so hard for these people or there's no morality for the poor. I don't know what you're supposed to think there other than just... He's a scumbag. Have it be like you some just kind of, think he's a scumbag. Yeah, some kind of gut punch, but... I don't mind movies about scumbags, but just <laughs> you know, convince me that I need to watch the movie. Well, you're going to have to convince me why you loved Something Wild, which was my, my hate pick. Directed by uh, Jack Garfine. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, has he done anything else? This guy. Yeah. Well, he's he was a big guy in the in the New York Actors Studio, oh. and uh, so did a lot of stage stuff. But his, I think he made three films, but I don't know what the third one is. It might be a documentary. Um, his his movie previous to this was The Strange One, which is about a cruelty in a in a Southern military academy, and I really really like that movie a lot ben gazzara's in it and this this is a very different sort of movie but he's got you know it's got that uh, sort of independent cassavetti's uh, new york vibe to it but i'll let you talk about what the movie's about it's about <laughs> rape um basically this is a film about a young girl named marianne played by carol baker who uh when coming home from school gets raped in a in a park in new york city and then doesn't tell anyone. She goes home. She doesn't tell her mother. And then she ends up... Okay, this film starts out as a, a really interesting... It, number one, this movie's beautifully shot. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, like, there's... The opening montage is fantastic. There's so many awesome shots of New York City that I just love to see. It was great. I mean, and then the movie is paced really interestingly. It's really slow. Uh, it reminded me almost of Repulsion, which doesn't hasn't even been made yet. And it, it's like this really nuanced take of her after having this horrific experience, trying to get back into her, the rhythm of life. And then she won't tell anyone. We see her at home in a bathroom cutting up all of her clothing and then flushing it. You know, she's basically experiencing PTSD, but she doesn't even know what that is. And people don't even acknowledge that even still in the 60s. She's on a crowded subway and she has a nervous breakdown. Uh, and then she just leaves and she tries to start a new life where she gets a job in a shop and then decides, you know what, she's just going to kill herself. And then this is when the movie changes. Yeah, well, it's really, it's two movies. I, I, I would argue that it's the same movie twice. So she is about to kill herself when this random guy who's walking across the bridge Mike um, the mechanic pulls her down and says no don't do that and says oh you just need a place to rest so he brings her back to his place and and he says uh, uh, I saved your life you know why don't you do this for me now yeah sort of like I I own you now but he does it in a really subtle he starts subtle yeah he sort of eases into that idea that uh that, okay, now you're my prisoner. So, yeah, the first half of this movie is a 
rape and aftermath movie. And the second half of this movie is an abduction movie. It's an abduction movie with a guy who keeps her locked in his basement apartment, uh, literally locked. She He goes to work. He won't let her leave. She is suffering from PTSD, and also she is being kidnapped, and she has nowhere to go. She doesn't know really where she is, and she can't get out. The guy will stumble home drunk and get belligerent and tries to rape her again. She freaks the fuck out. Kicks his eye out. <laughs> yeah, which was which was okay. <laughs> which is important. I think that's important that she, she fights back. Okay, here's the thing. Here's why I hate this movie. Like, number one, part of why I was interested and even knew what this was is because this got released on Criterion. And I have to say, I like Criterion a lot. I'm not trying to shit on Criterion whatsoever. But it does piss me off when people get like overly reverent about Criterion because I'm looking at shit like this. Look at this horrible fucking movie. Like, yes, I am glad that they took it and they cleaned it up. I'm glad that like, you know, again, this is visually striking. It is an interesting film. But the plot of this movie is so goddamn terrible. Awful. Had it just been that first half of that film and maybe like a really interesting sort of study on on dealing with trauma. I would have loved this would have been like a five star movie for me. And I was I thought like this was going to be so good. And then it turns into just this kidnap a male fantasy of a broken bird that you can keep in your fucking basement. Oh, I read it totally. Differently. Oh, God. Let me ask you this. OK, so the first half was great. You, you thought that was really well done. Yeah. Where do you go from there? She can't get her life back together. Nothing will ever be the same for her. She can't rebuild her life. When she goes to kill herself, it's because there is no place for her. She doesn't know what she's supposed to do with herself. Everything she does is colored by this rape, and she doesn't know how to live anymore. And She's not in her right mind. No, I, and also, I mean, this this is also buying into this concept that now she's dirty, which is why she won't tell her mother that she's ruined. She's a ruined flower, and, and her whole life now has to be colored by this rape, which is a fucking toxic-ass idea, and I can't stand that stuff. And then... You know, she's also, again, she's she's not in her right mind. She doesn't know. She's not telling anyone what's happening. She needs help. And I don't blame her for getting to that point. But there's plenty of interesting places that this could have gone about that. You know, she could have been saved from the suicide by the cops or something. And then had to sort of deal with the truth of what happened and then deal with putting her life back together. That would have been totally interesting and fine. It didn't have to like lead into this, like, I saved you, so now I own you softcore fantasy i think the second half is fascinating and i don't think it's meant even to be taken literally i think this is her perhaps death fantasy this is the way in her mind she can deal with her original attack and and put some sense to it and she recasts her rapist as this guy mike on the one hand he's not touching her when he's drunk he tries to and she kicks his eye out she's she's able to see this as a way of fighting against her attacker she's kind of relieved to be locked up by this guy she doesn't know she can't get her life together all she does really want to do is sleep and being locked up by this guy is allowing her to sleep and get her head together again but i hate that I hate that because it's, it's <laughs> bullshit. Like the, the sentiment of, of she's relieved to be locked up 
who the fuck would ever be relieved to be locked up? I mean, what an awful sentiment. It's such a male interpretation of how women deal with something. It's just pulp nonsense. I mean, this guy kidnaps her and won't let her leave. She's screaming. I mean, like, she does a great... I have to say, Carol Baker does a really good job in this movie throughout. When she's, she's screaming, like, she's, she's screaming. I mean, she uh, absolutely crushes it. But it's like... I would hit this guy in the goddamn face if I would have ripped his eyeballs out and then I would have broken down the damn door. It's like, I agree that the reason why she kind of resigns, and I'm just going to straight up spoil this movie because she's kidnapped for like days and then eventually he forgets to lock the door. She leaves. Uh, she walks like a freaking hundred blocks. I don't think it was meant to be that, but just the locations. You're like, how the hell did she get from there to there? <laughs> you know, and then she goes back to him. And then she says, yes, I hurt you and you're just broken like I'm broken and, and we should just build a life together. And then she realizes that she's pregnant. And then, uh, you know, eventually her tells her mother after disappearing with the cops looking for her for like a year or something, you know, the mother comes and starts weeping about like, why the fuck are you here? Like, why are you in this crappy area? And she's just like, I'm in love, mom. Like, you didn't understand. Like, what an awful ending. Like, what a terrible story. I, it's just, why would she ever do this? Like, I, I, you know, again, and this is just buying into this idea that she is indeed now broken because she, because she was victimized. You're not broken forever if you get raped. Like, that's just a horrible sentiment. <laughs> and then also for this total creep. I mean, like, it's one thing if she was like, well, you know, like, he, uh, you know, has depression issues. So, I'm, you know, like, I'm going to stick with him. No, this guy, like, literally locks her in a room and kidnaps her. Like, that's... She's his last hope. Yeah, exactly. And he's sitting there saying, oh, you're my hope, you're my hope. And so I have to, like, lock you up. Like, this goddamn awful i like seeing you in here it just felt so pulpy especially to have such a interesting beginning and it was really realistic and then have this totally wild creepy male porn stalker fantasy play out in the end I don't think it felt like a male fantasy at all. At least I don't think I know any men. Well, maybe would... you don't like locking up women in your basement, which is good. But that shit happens all the time. That happened really recently, like in the Midwest. That's what creeps me out about it. It's not like this never happens. Like this totally happens. Like women get kidnapped and held in people's basements. I love how pessimistic the ending is, though. You're not supposed to think, oh, this is a happy ending. I was really impressed with how it was willing to choose this path as her road to recovery. And I think it's all done in a heightened way that's very different from the first half of the movie. So it doesn't even feel very real. It does feel like a fantasy, but it feels like her self-loathing, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Everything's changed for me now. All the guilt and dirtiness that she feels about the rape is her own. I mean, obviously, like, society encourages this kind of attitude that uh, she's a soiled woman now, like she's uh, damaged goods now. But I think, at least by 1961, there, there's the fact that this movie could be made shows this idea still exists. But I don't think the movie is seeing her as damaged goods who can never have a normal life again. I'm, I think it's gotten inside her head you know, when she goes to kill herself, it is kind of a death. And it sort of replays the story again of her being assaulted and have a little bit 
of agency in her attack, you know, to fight back a bit, to be able to finally leave once she's sort of achieved this, she's gotten to this place where she's sure that she actually does want to leave, to be able to leave and then make the choice to come back. And I think that it's an ugly ending and not a happy one at all, but it portrays where she is in her head in a way that really rung true for me. I have some purpose in life if I go back to this broken man because I'm broken myself and we can rebuild our lives together. I totally understand why a lot of people watching this movie would think that, what, they call that a happy ending? They call that a positive ending? No, it's not a positive ending. It's just this sort of twisted idea of how she feels that someone like her can actually rebuild her life. And that's what I was really impressed by. Even if I give you all of this, even if I say, sure, this is what they were going for. So then if I watch this and and I'm raped, I meant to be like, well, this woman did it. You know, it's like, it's just such a horrible example. And it's not based on a true story. None of this has to have happened. So I just don't really want to see that. I don't need to see that, especially when it's a contemporary film about something that happens every day. I don't need some like nuanced like well this one person used her kidnapper to like get to a better spot like fuck that like (laughs) you know like it's just it's just so toxic and it just like it just doubles down on on like you know well now you're meant to feel this way like you're meant to feel dirty oh gee how do you deal with being dirty well you make the most of it like screw you (laughs) i just hate it i just can't get past that it sucks because I love so much about this movie. Like, I really thought this was going to be going to surprise me considering the plot. But I, I just, I can't, especially for 61, I can't give this anything more than what it gave me. I can't read into something <laughs> where I feel like it's not giving me enough to go on. And for something that happens all the time and already in the 60s was this point of shame and was this sort of life ruining thing. And it's like, well, women, if you if it doesn't work this way, have you tried marrying your stalker? Like, fuck that. Well, if you want to see a great movie seek this movie out and stop it halfway through yeah <laughs> if you want to if you want to continue on after that and see a really twisted fucked up fantasy of a woman trying to work through a horrible sexual assault and succeeding in the worst way possible then uh you know go ahead and finish the movie that is the thing i have to say if i had just watched the second half of the film and that was the movie that was presented to me i would have been like oh this was like pulp trash loved it but the mix of the two it was just such a letdown yeah well that was 1961 there's a sample of uh of some of the uh, the more interesting some of the sexier <laughs> love them or hate them the, all the movies uh, we watched were worth watching and discussing anyway it is really interesting that we ended up watching all of these movies and especially it was funny to for me having chosen movies decently blindly I, I mean like I chose Splendor in the Grass because I love it like I really wasn't thinking too deeply about what I chose and, and it, they all ended up being about women and sex which is, you know, is, is interesting. And then everything that you chose too. It's a little sad to see that the only way that we can talk about women so far in 61 was through the lens of sex and how they can be used or use other people for sex. But, you know, take what we can get. But you know what? In the 
the performances by the women, you know, we've, we've talked about already about how there are so few interesting roles for women in the 60s, but Carol Baker in this movie, Deborah Carr in The Innocents, Natalie Wood in Splendor in the Grass, Claudia Cardinale, those are all incredible performances and really interesting characters. So there were a few roles for women out there in the 60s, 1961 anyway. Did I mention the children's hour earlier? That's that's another fine women-centric sex hysteria movie with with solid central female performances. Yeah, I mean, but then that's the that's the bummer. It's like I agree, these movies were really good and the performances are fantastic, but then it's like you're a prostitute or you're hysterical, you know? Like granted these movies aren't so black and white, but it is sort of interesting to see those limitations, but then seeing where these actresses could take it is awesome. And the, and the writers and the directors. Yeah. And I also think we are, I mean, I was mentioning earlier how, you know, Hollywood was dying. And I think the only way to get people to show up at the movie theater was to bring in a whole lot of sex, a whole lot of stuff that you couldn't see for free on TV. So, you know, it's not necessarily, Hollywood saying, yeah, the only way that we can have a woman in a movie is to to show her having sex or not having sex or, you know, make it make it very sex centric. But it's, you know, all of these movies, all the dramas that were coming out in the 60s were very sex centric. They're all about seeing what you get away with. Just wait till we get to 69. been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.